Hello, and welcome back to the AI Insiders podcast, the flagship podcast of poets. Hmm, yes, the unacknowledged legislators of the world. Don't worry, I'll unpack that as we go through this interview with my guest today. But I want to start with that intro, uh, perhaps to highlight the, the weirdness of this topic, poetry and AI, uh, because that sort of reflects where we are right now in this world of AI. Weird. Uh, and so what better person to help us all navigate the weird ahead than your host, myself, Adam Russell, a sociocultural anthropologist and director of the AI division at University of Southern California's Information Sciences Institute. I mean, as weird and aliens go, that's kind of my brand. Well, I'll tell you, you could eat beam better. And that is the humans behind AI at ISI. And as director, I'm on a quest to work smarter and harder, of course, uh, to get to know more about these humans and the ones I'm lucky enough to work with, not just what they do technically in AI, but who they are and why they do it and what they think and hope for and fear and scratch their heads about this whole AI thing. Again, my hypothesis and the motivation for this podcast is that talking to the humans behind AI will give us a better sense of AI itself. Since even the most powerful systems now remain to some degree mirrors of our own selves, not just how AI is built and trained, but how it's used and increasingly integrated into all of our lives, often in ways that are far from obvious. So given that anthropology is first and foremost about turning the implicit into the explicit, that is surfacing what's not obvious, so we can all better understand the forces that are shaping our lives, I'm particularly excited to be joined today by someone who not only knows ISI far better than I do, having been here much longer, but someone who has deep experience of surfacing the non-obvious through technology and poetry. My guest today is Wael Abdelmajid. He's a research associate professor of electrical and computer engineering at USC, research director, distinguished principal scientist, and I'm very glad to say a deeply valued colleague of mine. Um, I, I like to call this the origin story part of the podcast. Uh, again, I'm really well familiar with with what you do, uh, and frankly, it's it's awesome, the, the work you're doing. We'll touch on that. But I want to get a better sense of like sort of why you do this. And one of the questions I like to ask my guests is, assuming that uh, we have this sort of impossible ability to go back in time, I'm genuinely interested to hear today while speak to 10-year-old while and sort of explain to that 10-year-old, what, what do you do now? I do a lot of things. One of them, which is that dear and near to my heart, is trying to figure out if what you see is real or not. And this is what I would tell my 10-year-old self or six-year-old daughter. Um, I want to help you make sure that what you see is actually true, if that makes any sense. Because I deeply care about the notion of reality. That makes sense. But explain to your 10-year-old self like why that's a problem. So why, if, if future while to the 10-year-old self doesn't exist or isn't doing this work, what's the bad outcome that you're trying to prevent? The bad outcome is that if we continue blurring the line between what's real and what's fake, everything suddenly becomes fake. It's not like we're going to believe anything. Once we see, once we start losing confidence in information, we lose confidence and we turn into a cynical society. I am not really worried about the notion that AI is going to take over and kill all humans and mm -hmm. the Terminator 2 scenario, um, which could happen in a in hundred years, but I'm, I don't think with the current situation of AI and misinformation, we're even ready to live for the next 10, 15 years because we turn into a really cynical society. That's not mm. a good place to, to be. 
Yeah, I've heard before that, uh, you know, societies uh, don't get murdered, they commit suicide. It sounds to me like you're more concerned that we we might tear ourselves apart, right? We end up committing suicide and starts rather than the robots killing us. We we sort yeah. of yeah kill ourselves in the process because we just, yeah. Exactly, because we, we're very worried about what will happen in 50 years or 100 years when AI becomes so autonomous and then the, the AI will improve itself to the point where it kills all humans while we're actually ignoring the the present. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I use the term apocaloptimism. I think you've heard me say this before, right? So, <laughs> I love it, yes. I, I really do feel like there's something to it because it doesn't allow you to take a neutral position. You have to believe that it is possible that we'll have this amazing future materialized, but it could also go really wrong. Let me ask you right now, um, back to your 10 year old self gets, gets what you're doing, gets why it's important, but still has questions like future wild self. How did we get there? Like what, what, what motivates us to, to, you know, head in that direction? I'll tell you how I got attracted to computing in the first place. In the mid eighties, I used to listen to a lot of music, both Arabic and, and Western music. And one of, not one of my favorite, my favorite composer, music composer, hands down, was born blind. And he was such a genius that he was not just a music composer. He actually worked with Yamaha in the mid 80s. The, the, the Yamaha keyboards back in the mid 80s used to play only Western music. It, it had the half tone, it did not have the quarter tone. And you can think of the quarter tone as an extra key between the white and black on the piano, hmm. right? Mm-hmm. This is what, and and he was born blind, yet he taught himself how to write code. And he worked with Yamaha in the mid 80s to incorporate the quarter tone into Yamaha's keyboards. And I remember I finished high school, I sent him a letter he, uh, to his radio show, and I told him, I like you so much, I'm not going to go into music, you inspired me to go into computers. And I still remember that to this very day, he actually read my letter on, on his show and he wished me luck. That was 1989, something like that. So it all started by, or from music. I, I don't know where that where, where he is now, uh, still alive? He, he passed away like uh, from heart disease, I think 12 years ago. Hmm. Did he have any idea of the success that you would become in, no, in computers? But- no, unfortunately not. But I don't. At least I don't think so. But uh, after he passed away, I wrote uh, a eulogy, and um, I think at least people know how much I appreciated him. Um, one question I like to ask my guests is: Is there a hobby or something you do on the side that you feel informs and uh, your work in AI makes it better? Um, if, if poetry is not the answer, I'm happy to go the direction you want, but I am genuinely interested as to that relationship between science, engineering, and, and poetry. Is there a relationship? Do they do you feed off that in some way from an insights perspective? How do you think about that? It does, yes. So so if if uh, if I have to talk about a side hobby, if you will, it's certainly poetry, both write, reading and writing, and also translating poetry from the Arabic language to English. I'd be lying if I tell you that 20 years ago or 30 years ago when I started doing data sciences and AI, I was thinking about this. But at least lately in the last five years, this is this has been kind of what shapes my thinking in terms of AI. You graciously found some of my poetry online and it, it talks about 
social justice, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And this is where I want to spend my time doing AI. Back to misinformation and my my twenty year old daughter or your six year old daughter. I think poetry is 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 the driving force behind what I do. I've, I've got I've got chills. I, I think that's uh, I think that's, that's that's really powerful. Um, I I would never presume to to read anyone else's poetry out loud, and and I won't. Uh, but I do hope you let us link to um uh the one I I particularly think is very relevant, and they all are. But this one about the the special meeting with the son of Noah, in which you're talking about you know the calamities that are falling upon uh, upon the earth, um and of course the story of of Noah is that there's an ark there to to rescue Noah and those who were lucky enough to be in there. But instead, your heart said no to the ark, for you love the motherland. You, you're you're staying behind to do the hard work. The rest of us is that. Am I misinterpreting that? How do you how do you think about that? You're you're not misinterpreting. This is exactly what it what is was meant to be. But let me flip the script a little bit and ask you, why did you like this particular poem? I have a whole bunch of them. Why did you like this particular one? I I haven't spent enough time thinking about it to be honest. Uh, and and it's one of those things where when you read. Uh, when you read a poem that resonates with you, that you know it is like there's a there's a there's a gong inside that goes off, and you're not really sure what got it going, uh, yeah. but there is something that resonates with me about this idea of I I will say no to the ark, and I'll I'll be here to do the hard work. That yeah, I I think I think you you nailed it. Essentially, the whole uh, idea behind the poem is some people will will basically just decide to right not go into the ark not not essentially flee the the flood and do the hard work and they don't know myself included whether we are in the right direction or not i cannot tell you right now that what i'm doing will lead to massive benefit to society in 10 years but at least i believe in it right now i have no idea if this is the right decision or not but i will ditch the ark uh, happily <laughs> And that that maybe is what resonated is yeah you're right there's there's no suggestion that this is a better decision than anyone else's but but what else could you do and I I, I feel very similarly so um, I, I'm hesitant as an anthropologist to ever describe someone as bicultural um, because we're actually all sort of multicultural but it's obvious that you you do have deep roots in different kinds of cultures how how has that informed your work your work here this is actually a very insightful uh, from from your side. I am 51 this year, and I spent 25 years of my life in the Middle East and 25 years of my life here in the United States. So I can certainly say that outside of my thick accent, I am bicultural, if you will. And interacting with so many other cultures, whether it is my students from India or China or Europe, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. is kind of shaping the way I look into AI that if we cannot get it right in terms of bias and fairness and empathy, et cetera, et cetera, then it's certainly wrong. You look at systems, for example, like ChatGPT, et cetera, et cetera, um, or even face recognition systems. Yeah. We we know that these face recognition systems are biased against black people, for example, because of the amount of training data, et cetera. So I think this multicultural perspective is again one of the major driving force forces that shape my what i want to do in in ai yeah um we're keeping a uh, a chat gpt journal uh now dali so every day my daughter and i uh put in some keywords and come up with an image right from dali and that's sort of the capture of the day 
And I've been struck at the number of times that she's able to say a little girl doing X and invariably it's a little white girl who looks exactly like yeah, exactly. Addison. You just think like we didn't exactly. we didn't specify that, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 Really, really interesting. Uh and worrying to some degree. Yeah. Uh if someone is listening to this, which which is thinkable now increasingly. Uh, but if someone were listening to this and thinking, you know, this is right. I, the problems I want to tackle are big, and I think I need AI some way, shape, or form to help me contribute to solving those problems. What uh, what recommendations would you offer that young person? One of the major issues we, we face with the younger generation of PhD students or junior scientists, et cetera, in AI, is that the whole field is becoming extremely competitive. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a growing sense of imposter syndrome in the AI community, especially with PhD students. And I keep telling my students, you're good. If you receive a rejection for a paper, that if, if your paper hasn't been rejected, has been rejected to CVPR or NeurIPS or one of the top venues, the rejection is to your paper. It's not to you. You are not rejected. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this, I, I hope that this can be helpful to PhD students to understand that I'm not an imposter. I am I am good. And at some point, if I keep working hard, working smart, at some point, I will make it. Let's say AI does surprise you and actually achieves some level of intelligence, noting that word is really, you know, overdetermined. Uh, but some degree of empathy as well, and queries interacting with us on the on the on a regular basis that we would consider in the real world, but doesn't understand us. It's just obviously it doesn't understand us. You have the opportunity to give it a single book or movie or cultural artifact to say, AI, this is the best thing I have to try to explain the weird creatures you're dealing with called humans. What would that be? I will take George Orwell's Animal Farm, and <laughs> I and before I before I give it to AI, I will take the book. And I will underline and highlight there is a quote in that book that keeps fascinating me no matter how many times I I read it or hear it. The quote is, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. So I will highlight this and underline it and give the book to AI and and, and tell the AI, uh, this is how humans operate. So be careful. That's yeah, that, that makes sense. And, uh, boy, isn't, isn't that the truth? Um, a couple of, uh, quick speed round questions for you. And again, these are wildly unfair questions. So feel free to duck and weave. Uh, the first one is, is probably the hardest, which is, do you have a, do you have a good AI joke? Oh boy. I, 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 I don't know how to tell jokes. I, I, people tell me I'm too serious to tell jokes, but here is, here is, here is what I can tell you. I am seriously worried that before AI kills us, we will be dead by the massive amount of bad AI jokes out there. <laughs> We're flood the zone. Which, 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 is, which is what I call AIBJS, AI bad joke syndrome. I, I'm, I'm a fan of, uh, of neologisms. This is the show for you. Um, in the future, would you rather uh, fight for AI rights or fight to limit AI autonomy? Uh, I would still fight for human rights <laughs> because we, because because before we start worrying about AI rights, we still need to figure out human rights. <laughs> yeah, those those inconsistencies are there. That's <laughs> complete, completely fair. 
what what are you most excited about then in AI? We've talked about things you're worried about. Mm-hmm. Um, this work you're doing. Like, what do you what do you what do you see as the glimmer of like, oh, that's let's get after that. Healthcare. I I really think if we get it, if we get AI right, if we mm-hmm. start funding AI uh, with, with, with the same way industry is funding AI, if we regulate AI and channel our resources and intelligence into healthcare, I really genuinely think we can beat cancer with AI. Yeah. Yeah, your point is well taken because there are people who, even in ISI, probably why I'm, I'm so thrilled to be here, who are pointing out the many layers of causal interactions related to those sorts of things, right? All the way up to even even human behavior um, and, and getting people to do things that are they're good for them, uh, but also just not putting the onus on the individual and realizing that, yeah, we, we're subject to the structures that make it more likely that some people get cancer than others, for example. Yes. I got you. Um, would you rather see AI surpass humans in creativity or empathy? Um, certainly empathy. Maybe Maybe AI can teach us how to be more empathetic because I see inconsistency in terms of empathy as a major problem for humans. We're, we're just selectively empathetic, if you will, if that's a word. Yeah, so what? Uh, play that out for me a little bit. How, how can AI help us improve our own empathy? Showing us how to be consistent. Showing us that when you see the same injustice or crime committed against two different people of, of two different races or religions or colors, your response should be exactly the same. <laughs> I, I, I like it. Um, if you if you were to build a large language model, what would you name it? Hope. Back ah, to back so to your good. question about back to your question about poetry. I think hope would be my name. That is such a good answer. All right. Um <laughs> I want to say thanks, Wow, for for taking the time okay. to come along and, and be so candid and, and uh, you know, uh, just another example for those listening of, of why I consider every day at, at ISI to be a real blessing for me. Um, uh, anthropologists say you are the, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Uh, and I'm glad to say that I, I get to spend some time with you and hopefully be, hopefully be a good average. Thank you, Adam. And thank you for having me. And it was a really fun talking to you. Uh, well, I learned a lot. And so while, you know, this podcast is about AI as I started, but it's really about being human, uh, in an age of AI and working with it to help thread this apocalyptic needle. Um, I think you've given us a lot of insight on on how that might work, you know, and who might help us do it. I hope you will continue to say no to the ARC and stay here uh, with us to do this hard but unbelievably important work. Thank you, Adam. Appreciate it. Thank you uh, to our listeners for tuning in again. If you enjoy these short podcasts, please do that thing. Like us, give us stars, spread the word, send us feedback, and or just keep listening. And join us, please, again in the future for another episode of AI Insiders, uh, where we'll continue to navigate our way through this weird, weird world, doing uh, what I think humans do best when they face these kinds of challenges, working together as if all of our lives depend on each other, because they do. So for now and for the future, fight on. Fight on.